Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is our passage on which this sermon is based. Let's read it. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's Ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or uh, ish in the Hebrew. She shall be called ish, or sorry, isha, for out of man. For, uh, she was taken out of man, which is Ish. Kind of messed that up, didn't I? But Ish and Isha. And th- that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You can't understand the storyline about the Bible unless you understand something about marriage. The Bible begins with this marriage, and in the, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it ends with a marriage. The problem is our culture is deeply confused about marriage, and so it's very important, extremely important, to grasp a foundational passage such as this one. Um, I'm kind of going back to the basics, the basics of marriage this morning, and I'm, I'm hoping, trusting, that it, the Holy Spirit will take the basics and, and make that enough for you wherever you're at in your marriage today. I'm going to speak also to singles, of course, but uh, I'm just hoping, yeah, by going back and focusing on the simple basics, the foundations, somehow it'll do you good at whatever place you're at um, in your marriage. Genesis 2, this is a wedding. This is the very first wedding. And you know how in a wedding ceremony, the father of the bride brings his his daughter down the aisle and hands them to the groom. Well, in this wedding, the father of the bride is God, and he is giving the wife to the husband. I probably, I was trying to count back, um, how many weddings have I done in my 16 years as a pastor? Probably about 20 weddings, I would guess, during my 16 years. And nowadays, it's very rare for the groom to have not seen the bride's wedding dress prior to the ceremony itself. Now, I really, I love those traditionalists, the, the, the ceremonies where they haven't seen each other prior to the ceremony, because when she walks down the aisle and he's standing there and he's seeing her for the very first time and he, he goes flush red and bug-eyed, what they're doing is they're, they, they don't realize it, but they are actually recreating Genesis chapter 2. So that is what happens in Adam. When Adam sees his wife as God brings her to him for the first time, he says, at last, at last, this is now 
bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He, he explodes with joy at the sight of her. And that is exactly what's going on inside of a guy's head when he's seeing her for the very first time in, the, in their wedding ceremony. They're recreating Genesis 2. And then uh, notice, this is poetry, verse 23. I tried to make the case just a few weeks ago that Genesis chapter 1 was God's song of creation. Here I think Adam is composing a song. It is a spontaneous song, but he, he is following the pattern of his creator. So he sings. He's a poet. She's everything I ever wanted. She's perfect, he says. She's the one I have been looking for my whole life, which was about 24 hours <laughs> in total. Look with me back in verse 18. We're certainly familiar with this story. God has made a perfect world. Adam lives in a perfect environment. He has a perfect job. Everything should be perfect, perfectly perfect. That's why verse 18 hits with such a thud where we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. If you've been following along in Genesis up until this point, everything was good. God saw that it was good. God made it and it was good. Everything in Genesis to this point was benediction, was a good word. This, out of the blue, is the first malediction, the, the first bad word. And you say, how in the world, how could anything be wrong in paradise? H- how could Adam be alone when he had unfettered, uh, unblocked, perfectly close, intimate communion with God? He's with God. How can he be alone and be with God? Isn't that the very definition of not alone? There's only one possible answer, really, and it's this. I wonder if you've thought of this before, but this is it. God deliberately made Adam to need someone besides God himself. God deliberately made Adam to need someone besides God himself. On the one hand, That's a shocking statement. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense if you are, if you're a Christian and you believe in the Trinity. It makes perfect sense. It makes no sense if God is only one. It makes perfect sense if God is three. God made human beings to need not just Him, but to need other selves other persons, other relationships, other hearts, other souls, because God in his very nature is other persons. Mike Leake is a Baptist pastor who regularly writes on the Desiring God website. I found this reflection of his very interesting. He said, quote, early in our marriage, I loathed, loathed the times when my wife would leave for a few days to go and visit family. It was not good because I knew that this would mean what this would mean for lunch and dinner for me. It was going to be a steady diet of McDonald's, fish sticks, and pizza rolls until she returned. Not good. I was helpless without her mad cooking skills. What's not good here in the garden? Maybe it's not good for Adam because he's a sexual being. And while every other creature creature that had paraded in front of him had a mate, 
and every other creature could reproduce. It's not good because Adam has no one. Maybe it's not good because Adam is burning with sexual desire. Maybe Adam has emotional needs that aren't being met. Or maybe it's not good because there are physical needs, or in my case, dietary needs, spiritual needs. What, what is it? Well, this is what it is. Adam needed to love someone. Focus on those words. He didn't just need someone to love him. He needed someone to love. Without the woman, the intra-Trinitarian relationship of love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit— could not make its way into this world. If you go back to the very first sermon I preached in Genesis 1, I said the reason that God, there is a universe is because these three decided we want to expand the circle to include billions more. We want to expand the circle of love. And without creating the woman, uh, that love couldn't be properly brought to earth without man and woman together. So Adam needed someone to love. Another way of putting it, he needed someone to give himself to. He needed someone to give his whole self to. Adam was made not just to get, but to give himself away in love. And of course, That's us. It's really difficult for us to get that in our heads, living in the consumeristic society that we do, because consumerism is all about what? It's all about getting. It's all about getting. It's not not about giving. So many people, I would say, are not ready to marry because they're not ready to give themselves wholly, entirely to another person. Anecdotal evidence right here, but I would say of the, of the marriages that I have officiated that have ended in divorce, the number one reason those marriages failed is because people married, they married each other out of self-love as a way to give to themselves not to give themselves away. They enter into marriage as a means to have needs met. And I I mean, we get that. I understand that. When you live in such a broken world as we do, it creates a whole lot of needy people. I mean, we are extremely needy. We're much needier living in this place than we would in paradise. We're bleeding. We're We're bleeding emotionally and mentally. There's blood everywhere from the wounds that we have suffered. We need triage. We need support. We need counseling. And so we desperately reach out to another person and try to to make them my lifeline. Because I need, I need to be loved by you. Meet my needs. And marriage becomes an act of desperate self-preservation. Frankly, that's how a lot of people marry. Um, they're not ready to marry. They are not ready to marry because they're, they're not really ready to love somebody more than they love themselves because they're hurt so badly. I'll say one thing here to you if you're single and you want to get married. If you are looking for a spouse, could I just suggest to you three words? And those three words are 
established track record, you should only marry somebody who has a well-established track record of demonstrating that they know how to love another person. Uh, and many people. Uh, you, that, which means that you have to know them long enough to actually have seen a track record established. You got, we have all these people getting married, and you, you barely even know the other person. Now, they need to demonstrate that they don't need to be loved as much as they need to love. And they need to demonstrate that over an extended period of time. You need to see an established track record that they are, that their dis- disposition is not consumer, but giver. And I just, I dare say that we end up jumping into marriage a long time, uh, much too quickly, without ever seeing a truly established track record. Do you want to have a great marriage? Here's a good formula for a great marriage. When two people say that I will outgive the other person, when you've got two people saying, I will outgive you, it's not 50 50, it's 100 100. My goal is to outgive you. That is a good formula. My goal is to, is to give myself away to you. That, that is the love of the Trinity. Coming down to earth, filling this earth as it was meant to be and and spreading throughout all of the universe into every corner of the galaxy. Let's go back to verse 18 again and look there. Again, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a suitable helper. The first word suitable is an extremely important word. Now, the prevailing wisdom in our culture is that as long as two people love each other, and as long as they are consenting adults, then they are free to marry. That's the prevailing wisdom today. Gay men are free to marry gay men, lesbian women likewise. Because as long as there is love, that's all that is, that is needed. And therefore, there's no reason to privilege heterosexual marriage over another. To do so is simply an act of bigotry. Now, I understand why non-Christians go there and why they reach those conclusions. What I don't understand, what makes me want to pull my hair out of my head, is when Christians start trying to make the same arguments. Because, it, look, this word's suitable. If the scriptures are going to be our normative guide to shape our moral intuitions, then look no further than this word suitable here in Genesis chapter 2. The, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple word. It's a compound Hebrew word. It, the word is ke-negdo. There's two parts. Ke is simply the Hebrew word for like or similar. Neged is the Hebrew word for opposite. A suitable helper is a like, opposite partner. So the woman, she's like Adam. She's like Adam in her humanity. But she's a suitable partner because she's opposite man in her gender and in her sexuality. And according to the creator here at the beginning of the Bible, both are necessary. The likeness and the oppositeness, both are are critical. Actually, that's... That's what makes marriage wonderful. Let me explain. I think they wrote this in their book, Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. I know we have a couple of copies back there on the book table. But they use, I think it's there, 
uh, an illustration of puzzle pieces. He says, two puzzle pieces will not fit together if they're identical. It's only if they're not identical that they fit. They both have to be puzzle pieces. They have to be like. And they, they can't be puzzle pieces in general. They have to be like opposites. Otherwise, they don't, they don't fit. But when you take two and you put them together, then they are rightly different and differently similar. And so they're ultimately complementary. Notice God did not say, it's not good for man to be alone, so I will make another man who can you know, go hunting with him and eat ribs with him and, and drink beer and watch sports. The reason God didn't say that is he knew he needed to put us with our opposite. Anatomically, we are opposites that fit. But of course, our male-female oppositeness goes far beyond anything physical. Um, we think differently. We feel differently. We respond to things differently. One of us is from Mars. The other of us is from Venus. And so in marriage, there comes into your life a person with mysteriously profound differences than you. I mean, they are so different. My wife is so different than me. And ultimately, that is what makes it great. God knew we needed opposite. That is why marriage must be, must be heterosexual for anybody who's allowing the scriptures to form their moral intuitions. Two puzzle pieces, unity and diversity, when they fit pr properly together, is uh, perfect complementarity. Or they're perfectly complementary, that's a better word. <laughs> Verse 18, but by the way, I I'm keep coming back to it because it's such an important verse. It is not saying anything derogatory about women here when it calls woman man's helper. Helper is a very strong word in the Bible. Ezer is the word. It's a divine word of the 21 different times it's used in the Bible. 15 of those, it's used of God. It's kind of interesting. The medieval theologians, they picked up on the symbolism of Adam of Eve being created from Adam's rib. They said, they said basically, she wasn't created from his head so as to rule over him, but neither was she created from Adam's feet to be his lowly servant, but so that it might be very clear that she was to be his partner in love. She was created from his side, side by side. That was God's intention from the very beginning, side by side. From side by side, I want to move on to a, a words that rhyme, and you probably heard them in relation to marriage before. Leave and cleave. Because marriage involves these two. Leave and cleave. First of all, the leave part. You know, in a wedding ser service, a bride's father walks her down the aisle and gives her to the groom. He will often place her hand into the hand of the groom and usually would res will respond, when I say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? She says, her mother and I. And then he steps back. Symbolically, what is happening? He's, he's giving her away and she is leaving. A man shall leave his father and mother. A woman shall leave his father and mother. What does it mean to truly leave? Because I've seen a lot of people, they move out, although that's becoming less frequently. They move out of their parents' house but they don't 
really move out in some of the most important ways. What does it mean to leave? To leave your family of origin, you must say, my spouse is my priority over anything else. My spouse is my priority above anything else, save my relationship with God. If you're in a sad marriage today, a bad marriage today, I I doubt that you probably can say that, um, honestly. That my spouse is my priority above anything else. The 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 leave, um, you know, in marriage you are creating a new family unit with a whole new set of priorities and a whole new set of ways of doing things that are different from your family of origin. Your allegiance has to change. And sometimes as we go along in marriage, uh, we do break our allegiance with our parents, but we then end up making other alternative allegiances, if you know what I mean, with, um, with our buddies or with our golf game, or with our fishing, or we make all kinds of, and so even if you've kind of left the family, it's still possible to have left the family, but not, not truly to have left. It's very hard to leave your family. It's a big challenge in marriage. Always, probably the biggest two challenges, I always tell them this in premarital counseling, your first year of marriage, sex is difficult, and in-laws are difficult. It's just, it's hard to leave. And it's extremely hard on your parents to allow you to leave. Put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. They have spent their whole life caring about you, doing everything for you. And then all of a sudden, this other person comes in. And in the old language, the language I think is of the King James Version, it says, a man shall forsake his father and mother. And a mom and dad's like, what? You're forsaking me? Parents, you've got to give them space to do so. Some of you have been married for decades, and you're still having trouble with this appropriate leaving. Let me give you... this uh, uh, quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, and it's a lengthy quote, but please try to stick with me here. He writes, the leaving of a father and mother in reality means this, that a husband must not allow his father and mother to control him as they have always done here hitherto. This is the point at which difficulties arise. And of course, when you look at it from the standpoint of the father and mother, This situation should be equally clear. They must readjust themselves, even as their son or daughter does. They have to realize that their son's first loyalty now is to his wife, and that he is a very poor specimen of manhood, a very poor husband, and ultimately a very poor son, if he fails to show that loyalty to his wife. Lloyd-Jones goes on. They must not interfere in this new married life, They must not think of their son any longer as simply their son. He is now married. A new unity has been created. And whatever they do to him, they do to his wife at the same time. It is really the essence of the apostles' teaching about marriage that all parties involved have to realize that a new unity has come into being. It was not there before, but it is there now. Cleave. From leave to cleave. Cleave is a strange word because it's actually, it's a contronym. It's a word that can have 
completely contrary meetings. What do you do, meetings? What do you do with a meat cleaver? <laughs> Whack! A meat cleaver you know, cuts two things apart. But what is the meaning of cleave in the language of the Bible? It means to, to meld two things together so that they are inseparably connected. Um, Cleave is a strange word, as I said. When Genesis speaks of cleave, it means this. It means to pledge your absolute loyalty and total commitment to another person by taking a binding public promise and oath to stand up in front of a bunch of people and promise. It means to enact a covenant. That's exactly what's happening in a wedding ceremony. A covenant is being made. And at the heart of a marriage covenant, you notice when they take vows in a wedding ceremony, you, you don't take vows based upon your feelings in that moment. The vows we take don't say anything about our feelings. It says really nothing about the present. The vows that we take in a wedding ceremony, I love this, are a way for us to make an appointment with ourselves in the future. It's for us in a future date because everything that is vowed in a wedding ceremony is a promise of future love. It's future love. Nobody's standing, sitting there in the ceremony doubting that you're in love right now. What they're wondering is, are you going to pledge your future love? Are you going to be there 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the future? What you are doing when you cleave and take that binding promise is you're saying, yes, I promise to. I will love you till I die, and mine is an exclusive love. I will give my love to you and to no one else, you and you alone. And you can bet on me that 50 years from now, I will still be in this. I will not cut and run. Uh, Singles or newly married people, uh, I I do want to stress to you that if, if you hope to sustain a long-term relationship on the basis of your romantic feelings, good luck, (laughs) because it doesn't work. Don't get me wrong. Romance is wonderful. We should should desire it. We should cultivate it. We should go after it. But it won't sustain your relationship. There will come a day you look across the breakfast table some morning, and you will say to yourself, you will say to yourself, what? In the world have I done? (laughs) What have I done? Ah! And you won't feel like you want to love the other person. You will not feel like you are in love with the other person. You won't. But you are a unity. You, by virtue of making that covenant, you are one flesh. In God's eyes, you are a unity. Even if internally you feel like you're on polar ends of, opposite ends of the spectrum. You are a unity in God's eyes, and you are then to pursue what you already are. You are to pursue that unity in your relationship with your spouse. You're to cleave to each other physically, mentally, spiritually, socially, because you are melded together, and you cannot cut and run. We're so deeply affected by our consumeristic society. We're accustomed to, we, we always want to take back what we have um, and replace it with another. Every one of us 
is inclined to, to ask ourselves the question, I wonder if there's something better out there. Could I, could I trade this in and get something better? Could I upscale? Could I supersize? Um, you have to remain. You have to stay. You have to go hard. You have to do the hardest work of your entire life. You have to go get help. Why in the world do married couples not go get help sooner? I mean, if you, if you had blown out your ACL in your left knee, you would probably go see an orthopedist. If your wedding, if your marriage has been blown out, why in the world do you think that you guys are going to fix it on your own? Sorry. <laughs> I've just seen it happen so many times. So where do you then get the power to follow through on your marital commitments? Some applications of this briefly. First, you have to understand that your relationship with Jesus Christ supersedes all other relationships. Your relationship with Christ is more important, it's more wonderful, it's more glorious and more passionate and more delightful than your relationship with your spouse ever could be. And it's this relationship with Christ that gives you the resources for what you need to do in your marriage right now. Wherever you are, whatever sorrows, whatever joys, he equips you for the love that he is calling you to give. You've got to believe that. You've got to break the cycle of cynicism that says it can't change. You've got to believe that Christ has the power to resource you even though it feels entirely daunting. (laughs) Ted Tripp in his book, his marriage book, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage has a list of 20, 25 things marital love requires. 25 things, and it's so daunting. Here's just a few of them. Marital love means that I need to fight against the temptation to be critical and judgmental towards my spouse while actively looking for ways to encourage and praise my spouse. Marital love means I need to be humble and approachable in times of misunderstanding and be more committed to unity and peace than to winning, accusing, or being right. Marital love means I need to be a good student of my spouse, looking for his or her physical, emotional, spiritual needs so that in some way I can help remove the burden, support them as they carry it, or encourage them along the way. He goes on and on. And I mean, they're all great. It just feels daunting. <laughs> Without a continual refilling of your soul's tank with the glory and love and goodness of Jesus Christ in the gospel, without refilling your soul's tank, it will be virtually impossible to accomplish this kind of love. That's why if your relationship with Christ isn't vitalized, then you don't have any vitality to give to a spouse. Just like you can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give away. In the same way, you can only be afford to be the kind of lover that you are called to be is if you yourself are being filled with the love of Christ. Number two, and I'll conclude with this. If you are single what good is it to have to listen to a marriage sermon? Um, It's very hard to be single in our culture, especially in our Christian subculture. 
I guess the one word that I would have for you is it's okay to be single. It's definitely okay to be single because you can live a fully human life, a life of profound fruitfulness and fulfillment as a single person. I mean, our religion started by a single guy (laughs) and Paul was a single guy because a romantic other is not who is going to sustain your life. Your life is to be sustained by your relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, being single is very hard in our culture. Mother Teresa said this. She said that loneliness is the preeminent disease of the West. Loneliness is the preeminent disease of the West. And it seems like that's even more so today than it ever has been. Because we are so lonely in our iPods and our iPads. We'll be sitting in a room with 10 other people and we're not even talking to each other because our faces are in our screens. Uh, It's lonely to be single, but I can tell you the greatest loneliness a human being can experience is not when you're single and lonely. It's when you're married and you're lonely. And you are as lonely as you've ever felt in your life living under the same roof with that man or woman you are married to. I just be careful not to marry too quickly. Uh, maybe I'm saying all of this because I now have a 19-year-old daughter, and <laughs> I'm saying it because, just trust me. <laughs> it's okay to be single. Jesus, in his day, rebuked the cultural narrative which maintain that marriage is the ultimate state and singleness is down here as inferior or complete. He rebuked it with these words. He said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. At the resurrection, there will will be, we're not going to be marrying and, and not marrying. Did you know that there are no single people in heaven? Did you know that? There are no widowed people in heaven. And there are no divorced people in heaven. Not because there's no more marriage in heaven. You will be married. I will be married. Everyone who is in, the, in heaven will be married to one great bridegroom. And I hope you realize that here on earth, the most intimate marriage relationship is but a dim reflection of the glory of the real union which takes place between Christ and his church. In conclusion, the Bible begins with a wedding, and the original purpose of this wedding was to fill the world with the love of the triune God. This original wedding, we'll see next week, failed. Why did it fail? Because the husband in this marriage failed to step in and help his wife when she needed him the most. But at the end of time, there will be another wedding, the the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will succeed where the first marriage failed. Why? Because the second husband will never abandon his wife. Christ will always remain faithful to you. Though you are unfaithful, Christ will never leave you or forsake you. In your union with Christ, he has left heaven and come to cleave to you. You are united to him closer than any two people could be. He loved you enough to die for you. And he will be your faithful bridegroom to the end. Amen.